0: Let's turn to First Timothy chapter one, verse verses three. Chapter, excuse me. First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. And before we do, I I would like to pray this morning about what is going on in our world. And um, to, I mean, there's war. Of of course, if you've seen this on the news, maybe you've seen it. uh, Maybe you have not. Uh, but if you've seen some of the images of Hamas and um, uh, invading Israel, who has seen some of the, the stuff that's on the news? Yeah, and so pretty horrible, horrific stuff, and it's going to escalate, I am sure. And so let's just pray. There are people like Christian uh, tourist groups that are over there now, somewhere. Had uh, Paul was telling me that somebody was on their way to Israel, landed in Turkey. And when the news that war had broken out and, and actually had to keep, the whole group canceled the trip and, and had to fly back. So a whole bunch of uh, things in disarray. And so if we could, um, um, I don't know why I came to this passage, but I thought if I could read this passage and then pray um, this morning. Um, let's just felt the kind of the need to do that. So if you would like to follow along, you can. Uh, But let's make this our, our prayer to God this morning. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me in your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. It's the reading of God's word. We say thanks be to God. And let's pray. Indeed, our gracious Heavenly Father, there is uh, much turmoil in our world. uh, And it's uh, heartbreaking to see the evil and the wickedness that seems to grow every day, and even more so to see the violence that is perpetrated um, uh, against the, uh, the people of Israel uh, right now. And so, Lord God, we would pray for you to bring uh, a swift end to hostilities, that you would bring peace, that you would comfort the mourning that you would bring healing, um, but even more above all of those things that that you would be exalted through the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the only hope in this world, the only hope of, of, of for anything, and our only hope, comfort in anything, whether it be life or death. So we pray for the evil perpetrators here that they would, uh, if they do not repent, that they would be met with justice. We pray that those who are experiencing uh, heartache and, and tragedy, that this, that we be reminded of, of Jesus' words in, in uh, Luke chapter 13, um, that this is a, a foretaste of the judgment that comes in the future to those who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, as their savior. So we pray that even in the midst of all of this, that in the most difficult of times that you would, that you would display your glory, that Jesus Christ would be exalted, that many would see and turn to him and that they would be saved. So God, we'd ask uh, that you do intervene and we trust in you. We know that, that the wicked do not flourish that they will not ultimately succeed that we when we gaze upon where Christ is seated at your right hand and where we will dwell with when we will dwell with him forever we know what the end of the wicked will be and so help us to stay focused on the author and perfecter of our faith who has gone before us and Lord, we'd ask that you would hear our prayers, which we pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach For God's church he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil this is a reading of God's word and we say thanks be to God so um as we begin this uh, this morning just kind of a recap this is the same passage that we uh, dealt with last week first Timothy chapter 3 and remember first Timothy is is part of what are often called the pastoral epistles and and I said that's an unfortunate name because there's so much more in here than just instructions for how uh, pastors should be or how the church should be governed and structured. But this is one of the passages that lead to why it's, why it's often called the pastoral epistles because here the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to Timothy on how to bring order to the church there, and he talks about the leaders. And so last week we looked at the different titles for um, one of the two major offices in the church, the two only offices in the church. And we looked at the office uh, of overseer or elder. We saw the word elder, and we saw presbyteros. We saw uh, overseer, episkopos, and we saw pastor or shepherd, um, and the other related terms and metaphors for that, like sheep and flock. Um, and all of those we, we saw last week are synonyms. They're used interchangeably. They're just different terms to describe uh, the same one uh, office that oversees the spiritual needs of the church. The other office, if you looked down uh, beginning in verse 8 of our passage and following, the other office is the office of deacons. And Lord willing, we're going to get to that next week. But last week we saw, we kind of broke this up into parts. We wanted to understand what an elder, uh, what an elder overseer or shepherd does. We saw that last week. This morning I want to speak to what a potential candidate for elder should be. Last week, we kind of laid the scriptural foundation for biblical eldership. Um, that was assumed by Paul and understood by Timothy. We kind of read between the lines on the office of elder. Um, and what today we're going to be looking at what an elder um, needs to be. We're dealing with the qualifications as presented in this passage. And we might look at uh, Titus chapter 1 has a similar passage, but our focus today will be on um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He begins, the saying is trustworthy. And if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, okay, we saw that overseer and elder and pastor are all the same office. Now let's look at the first qualification in verse 2. And I'm going to just kind of run through these in bullet fashion, and then we'll, we'll end with a couple of uh, two kind of points for us to think about. First one is above reproach. And I would say that this is kind of the overarching term for all of them. This is kind of the head on which all of these other uh, qualifications are um, uh, uh, hang from. The main qualification, and you see the same one if you were to flip to, to, uh, to Titus chapter 1, verse 6, begins the same way above reproach or blameless this is describing a person who who cannot be criticized now it doesn't mean that they're you know that nobody can criticize them. it's saying no, that there's there's no substance there if there was a criticism does not mean that an elder or overseer must be free from sin but that the emphasis here is on uh, the type of uh, reputation that this person has would be actually be a credit to the church and not a harm to the church. So above reproach. The second qualification is in verse 2 the husband of one wife. And then the Greek, it literally reads um, the man of one woman or a one woman man. Three Greek terms. One, woman or wife, man. And so there's several different ways that this is uh, to be understood. So I want to kind of look at this one a little bit because there you depending on what you might read, there's different interpretations of what does this mean? the husband of one wife or uh, a one woman man? One uh, interpretation of this is that it must be a man with a wife. In order uh, in other words, a qualification for an elder or overseer, or pastor, should be somebody who is married, meaning there's no single or unmarried pastors allowed. I don't think that that's what this means. There's some question on whether Paul was married or whether he had been married and then was divorced or was abandoned by his wife or or if he was single. Jesus himself was single. Um, So it's hard to suggest that Paul was saying that um, a man must have a wife in order to be an overseer. The second way to understand this, a one-woman man, it would be a man with only one wife, and that would be a man who does not have multiple wives. And I would say, well, yes, that's a, that's a good qualification. It's, it's that, but it's more than that. Yes, of course, we should not have a polygamous pastor and the idea is here is that in that ancient Greek culture that that may have been more common. And so you might have had Christians who were a part of the church and some were polygamous and some were not. And and some would interpret this as Paul is telling Timothy to only find the ones who qualify for pastors, the ones who are not polygamous. The idea is that no Christian really would have been a polygamist. That would not have been acceptable in the, in the church in that day. So it is that, but it's, it's way more than that. Here's the third interpretation, is it's a man having had only one wife. In other words, a man who has never been divorced A related kind of interpretation to that, or the fourth one is, a man having had only one wife would, would be understood as a, a widower who does not remarry. So somebody who maybe was widowed but is not allowed to remarry, or if, or if they did remarry, then they would not be qualified. I don't think any of those really get to the heart of this. I think uh, kind of what is generally understood here by a one-woman man is, is, a, is a statement of saying, faithful to his one wife. We could kind of say it even just like that. Are you you a one-woman man? You're faithful to one wife, devoted solely to his wife, and is that evident in the life of a potential candidate? Number The the third one here is, verse 2, sober-minded. Sober-minded, or in some translations like the, leg- uh, the Legacy Standard Bible says temperate. Uh, the old King James says it as vigilant. Um, this would be sober, temperate, um, abstinent in respect to wine would be how it's understood in, in some other contexts outside of the Bible. Uh, but uh, there, Paul gets to talking about uh, wine or alcoholic beverages a little bit later here, um, but this would be more like sober-minded in in outlook, sober-minded. It would be to know the times, to know what time it is. Someone who is spiritually or mentally alert to what is going on in the world. And again, this is a qualification that actually is applied to, to all Christians. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says these words, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Okay? He's using this term related to being awake and not sleeping. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. So here I think it's, it's are you sober? And it doesn't mean, hey, are you refraining from drinking? Because you could refrain from drinking and then not be aware of what time it is or what's going on in the world to understand what's happening in the church. So it's sober-minded is a great translation here. The next term he uses in verse 2 is self-controlled or The LSB has sensible, sensible person. This is a a similar idea of sound mind or sane or temperate or discreet. And there's a multiple levels here. This begins with the inward mental state. Is somebody, do they have the inward mental state of of stability? And that this manifests itself in an outward state. The, The behavior flows from this outward state. That's kind of what's behind this term. So are you self-controlled? Does your does the way you conduct yourself in the world, does it seem like it's controlled and focused and based on a sound mind or a sound mental state? And it's a it's it's also the term that's used for um, modesty and apparel. We've seen this this term, even though I didn't mention it before, but we saw this in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about the women's dress and apparel in their presentation in the church. Verse 9, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and that uses the term self-control. Not with braided hair, gold, or costly pearls. And then again, he brings this up in verse 15, uh, in that tricky passage about saved tr- through childbearing, if they, the Christian women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So again, it's another quality of... That's actually called for for all Christians, and so it's a quality that is required for the potential candidate for an elder or overseer of the church. Someone who is level-headed or even keeled. It's not captured by wild uh, emotional swings. Notice the next term: respectable, respectable. And this is uh, this is actually related to the the term. Um, well, our English term, cosmos. You know, if you've heard, familiar with the world, the word cosmos to describe the universe or the world. It's the Greek word for world, um, and it's also the word for adornment. It's related to that, which means that the world has an order and an arrangement to it. There's order in the universe. There's order in the world. So it's a, it's kind of a, um, a term that kind of. Captures both senses; it's describing the world, but its root origin means order and arrangement. And again, it's applied to Christian women in the church. They should adorn themselves in respectable, uh, ordered apparel. It's the same word. So, is this potential elder, overseer, shepherd? Is is he put together? And I'm not saying like in his clothing or anything. Does he have his life in order? Is he well-ordered? Is his life in turmoil or chaos or disorder? You know, obviously we get into seasons where that might happen, where you tend to be busy and things are into chaos. But as a general state of their life, does it look like their life is is in order? It's not overwhelming to them. So that's what's behind this term, respectable. So, um... Is there order in their life that you look at them and you respect that there's there's order in their life? Also, verse two, hospitable, hospitable. Uh, the Greek word here is uh, philozenos, philozenos, which is a compound word. Xenos uh, is um, uh, is is the term for strangers. You've heard of xenophobia, you know, fear of foreigners. The xenos there's that's the strangers. So it's phyloxenos, which is the word for love. So it's literally love of strangers. The love of strangers. That's the term here for hospital. Somebody who, do you have a love for strangers? Are you open to meeting new people and bringing them into your home and to to care for them, to get to know them, to talk with them? Uh, And once again, this is is a requirement that is encouraged for all Christians. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says the same thing to the entire church, to all the Christians, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, show love of strangers to one another. So, hospitable, also in verse 2, able to teach, able to teach. Somebody who is um, uh, didacticos is the Greek word there, able or skillful in instructing. Now, this is one quality out of two in this entire list that is not expected from every Christian. Okay? Not every Christian is expected to be able to to teach uh, to teach the faith. And at some level, every Christian should be able to to give a reason for the hope that is is in them. Every Christian should be able to explain the gospel to somebody else, the good news to somebody else. Uh, But in terms of instruction in the faith, one of the criteria that has to be for for all overseers of the church is, are they able to teach? Now, this does not necessarily mean that every uh, elder or overseer in the church is the primary teacher or preacher. That would be a wonderful thing. But that's not necessarily the case. You could teach in lots of different ways. You could hold fast to the doctrine of the Christian faith and encourage somebody in it in multiple different ways. You can help to oversee the doctrine of the church in multiple ways uh, apart from just preaching or teaching like we typically see on a Sunday morning. Diversity among the elders is good. Some are better at something. Some are better at administration. Some are better at soul care. And some uh, are, are, have their strengths of preaching and, and teaching. Not all need to be able to do that, but all need to be able to understand and hold with conviction and to be able to give instruction in the essential Christian doctrine, doctrines without uh, hesitation or mental reservation. And must not teach anything to the contrary. Titus chapter 1 verse 9. We saw this last week. Gives a similar thing in his list of qualifications there. Able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's verse 2. Let's move now to verse 3. Not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. Or not addicted to wine, uh, or the NIV has uh, not given to drunkenness, or another translation as, a, as an excessive drinker. Okay, this is a term uh, not so not only pertaining to its use, but also its misuse, and its overuse, and its abuse. Can can you have a drink on an occasion? Yes, that's totally fine. Teetotaling is not the standard for spiritual maturity. Paul, a little bit later, gives instructions to Timothy, quit drinking just water, drink a little wine for your stomach. There's, There's a medicinal purpose to it. The problem is, do you drink every day? That crosses the line. The term—it's it's interesting that the term does not mean intoxication. It means excessive drinking. So, in other words, it means if, if while well, I can handle my liquor, doesn't matter. Do you do it too much? Can you still drive your tractor after however many drinks? Yeah, look, I do just fine. That doesn't matter. Does that, are you drinking excessively? That's what this term is about. It's about it's—it's it's not just about its use, but it's misuse, overuse, and abuse. I heard one person say one time, if your male accountability partners are Jack, Jim, and Jose, then you're not qualified. I thought that was pretty good. For those the uninitiated, that's Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, and Jose Cuervo. Now some people get it. Okay. (laughs) My daughter was the last to get it. That's a good sign. Again, that's not just a qualification for, for elders and overseers. That's, a quali- that's actually an expectation for every single Christian. Do not get drunk on wine, Paul tells the entire church in Ephesus. So not a drunkard, not violent, or pugnacious is a—I love that term, pugnacious. Not pugnacious. This is a term for a violent man or a bully. And I think many of us might be very familiar of some high-profile examples of pastors who are bullies. Probably one of, the most, uh, one of the most popular podcasts in the country a couple of years ago, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. You familiar with that? Maybe two or three years ago, um, which was an expose behind uh, Mark Driscoll, some of you might be familiar with that name, uh, and his church at Mars Hill in Seattle, not the one here locally. Um, and was eventually lost his pastor because uh, he was pugnacious. He was a bully. He was a, a violent a violent person. Similarly, uh, the name James McDonald, does that sound uh, familiar to any of you? James McDonald was a uh, pastor, and founder of uh, the Harvest churches that were all over the Chicagoland area. And actually, even in Michigan, you go to Grand Haven, there's one of the Harvest campuses there. And uh, he was exposed for not only sexual harassment um, and a lack of transparency in finances and misappropriation of church funds. I mean, those were bad enough. But bullying, authoritarianism, authoritarian behavior. And I, if, I don't know if you are familiar, but like he would take pictures of uh, former staff members and put them up uh, out in the shooting range. Yeah, uh, and I, uh, so James McDonald, and I I, I got to tell this story. I shared this a couple of times with some people in private, uh, but I used to be at a Chicago area church. So it was in the area. You know, we we had Willow Creek Community Church, not very far away, and then um, James McDonald's Harvest Churches were not very far away, and the pastor of the church that I was at had actually taken courses with James McDonald at... Um, Trinity Ted's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I'll never forget this. You ever have these these moments where somebody says something and it just sticks with you? It just sticks with you? We're at a luncheon uh, with all of us at, at the church, and we're talking about, you know, we're strategizing about various things. And, and somebody had mentioned, well, why don't you kind of reach out to James McDonald and see what he's doing? And I'll never forget, the, the pastor kind of winced a little, and then very polite, kind of bit his tongue, and he goes, yeah, um, and he says this, quote, I don't think it will end well for that guy. Oh my. Yeah, this was in 2000, this was the year 2000, and it was one of those that's kind of an oddball statement, you know, and you're like, well, oh, that was weird, and then every time I, w- I would be at a conference and James McDonald would be a speaker, and I, that thought came, I remember when that pastor said, I don't think it's going to end well for that guy. Last week, I said that pastors need to uh, feed the sheep and shoot the wolves. You know, a pastor has to fight when fighting is warranted. A pastor, that's just part of the calling. And, and sometimes, you know, it can look harsh. It, it can, sometimes can look like the pastor might be shooting a sheep uh, when it's a sheep dressed, you know, it's a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. So some, from the outside, if you don't understand, it's, it can look like that from sometime. I understand that. Uh, John Calvin said this. I should have said this last week. Uh, a pastor ought to have two voices: one for gathering the sheep, and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And the Scripture supplies him with both. Okay, so there's there's times where pastors have to they have to fight, they have to be fierce, um, but you can't be a bully. And I see some pastor guys. They're pastor guys online. That I would probably see, you know, boy, we would be eye to eye with theologically. I think we'd be eye to eye on like a lot of things culturally too. Um, But you're pugnacious, you're constantly fighting. The shepherd and overseer cannot be violent or pugnacious, can't be a bully. In contrast, verse three, he has to be gentle or considerate. This is the, basically the opposite of violent or pugnacious. And again, this is a Christ, this is a qualification that is given for every Christian. This is just the calling for every Christian. Titus chapter three, he tells the, all the. Paul's telling Titus uh, to remind them, all of the believers in the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward, toward all people. Or in Philippians chapter 4, let your reasonably uh, reasonableness be known to everyone. It's the same term that's used here for gentle. Let your gentility be known to everyone. And, of course, Christ is our example in this. Paul says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's one of the qualifications. One of the the key attributes of Christ is meekness, strength under control, and gentleness. A smoldering wick he he will not snuff out. So the pastor has to navigate the past. The overseer has to has to understand when the voice needs to be raised. um, But but he can't be a bully. Likewise, not quarrelsome. Verse three or peaceable. Not to, this is actually the term with, the, with the, kind of the, the negative prefix at the beginning for it. This is the term for physical combat or a fight, like MMA. Think of that kind of thing. With or without weapons, okay? And so this is to say, to, to negate that, it's to say somebody who is not quarrelsome, not always in uh, contentions, not always in fights. Verse 3, not a lover of money. Or other translations that free from the love of money. Again, another compound word here. It's the love of silver. Somebody who does not love the silver, not covetous or, or stingy. And the idea is kind of extends beyond that is there's somebody who's who's generous. Which again, strangely enough, this is a qualification that is for every single believer. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So not quarrel, so not a lover of money. And then in verse 4, manage or leading his own household well. It's a term here for to appoint with authority or to preside or govern or superintend. It's kind of has you're watching over everything. You know how everything is functioning in the church, and you're giving oversight to to it, and to practice it, and to be diligent in maintaining it, to manage his household well. And he's not talking about our you know are things not broken in your house, like you know is that. The, the little things that are not fixed in your house, I've got a, a several of those things, and it, pro- it just drives Janet crazy, and I'm trying to get some of those done while she's out of town this weekend, just to, just to see the joy on her face when she comes back, that they, all of those things are done. It's not, it's not just the, the physical structure. It's the household. It's, it's the kids. It's the wife. Do you, are you attentive to everything that's going on? And he gives the reason here, he gives one of the the first rationale for this in verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he manage the church of God? I believe it was John Calvin who described the Christian home as a church in miniature. Uh, Or the Puritan William Perkins said that the family is a little church. Another Puritan, William, um, William Googe, said that uh, the household is the seminary of the church and the commonwealth. Richard Baxter said the family is a church, a society of Christians combined for the better worshiping and serving of God. Even going back further, it was Augustine who said what the preacher is in the pulpit, the same the Christian householder is in his house. The family then is the most, the family really is the most important institution in society. It's the first one God creates. It's the most important institution. And in a sense, the gathering together of the church, which is described as it's the family of God. It's just a, it's an expansion of that. I think if it was Calvin or whoever said it, that the the home is actually the church and minister, miniature is right on. And so, again, the obligation and the, the, the expectation for all of the heads of the households is that you are the shepherd and overseer, pastor, elder in your home. So one of the qualifications for an elder would be, are you, is this somebody who's doing that in their home? Are they managing their household well? Verse 4. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, how, how far does this go? This has been a topic of conversation uh, before. Like, does this mean if a grown child of an elder leaves the faith and that the pastor is disqualified? Um, it's tragic to see, um, you know, famous preacher like John Piper and his son, Abraham, who is all over. Was it Instagram, TikTok? Or I don't know what it is. But it's just a vehement, blasphemous critic of Christianity. It's just heartbreaking. And I remember that it was kind of a conversation that had come up, like, you know, is John Piper disqualified? I would, I would pump the brakes on that and say, no, you know, each person is responsible. When they're a grown adult, I think he's talking about, do, do, the, do the children in your household, does it look like they are under control because if they're out of control, then as smaller children, then you've then you've got a problem. That person really can that person be trusted to help bring control over the the sheep? So that's the first the the first one with a rationale for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he manage the church of God? Titus chapter 1, verse 7, has a similar statement. As God's steward, he says. It's a manager and a trustee. uh, And again, that's another compound word that stands for house law. Oikonomos. House law. Is this somebody who's, who's overseeing the laws in the house? God's steward. It's where we get the word Economics. So managing your household and managing your children. Managing your household means also not loving money. It's stewarding the good things that God has given you and stewarding them well. Verse 6, not a recent convert. I said that there were two qualifications that, um, basically, two qualifications in this list that are only two that are not expected for every single Christian. Uh, The first one was not able to teach. We saw that one. This one is uh, not a recent convert or a new convert, right, because um, this can't apply to all Christians because some Christians, not every Christian is a new convert. Some are old. Some have been a Christian for a long time. The Greek uh, word here is um, uh, neophytos. You ever heard the word neophyte? You know, it's a term for beginner or a novice. That's the term here. and it's interesting that that's a compound word It means like new growth, a new plant, like a new plant that comes up out of the ground. Um, and I, as reading that and studying that, it just reminds me of every sp- every spring. There's a spot in our house where it gets a lot of nice when the sun shines. It gets really warm right there. And it's the first place that the tulips come up. And Janet, she's got like an eagle eye for this kind of stuff. She sees those little nubs coming out of the ground and they're soft and kind of furry. And she likes to pet them. You know, and it's just kind of cute to see. You know, it early, late February, even sometimes early March. She's like, "Oh, look at these!" And then we'll pet them. And that's the term. That's the picture. The picture I get: those little furry nubs coming out of the ground. Like, um, that's a recent convert. Somebody who's a brand new Christian, right? It's a person. So, in other words, that—that's not somebody you should consider as somebody who's overseeing the flock of God. You have to have a person who's been a Christian a while, okay? Right? Who's had the highs of the Christian life and the lows, who's had the joys of salvation and the trials of sanctification. One who's not just experienced the success of conquering sin and being a new believer but the one who's also had the failings and failures of falling and backsliding. You need a, a mature believer who goes through all of that and come out on the other side more tempered, more hardened. Well, I'd say hardened hardened in some respects, but more softened too. Hardened in your resolve, hardened in your faith, hardened in your convictions about the goodness of mercy of God and his preservation of you through the difficulties and hard times, and then softened in your heart to those who struggle and fall. and Those who have the, the hands, if you could use this, the hands of the Christian faith have calluses on them. But the heart doesn't. A mature Christian has to go through those things. A new Christian who hasn't gone through those things isn't really prepared to lead others who go through those things. And this is the second criteria that's given with an explainer. He must not be a recent convert, convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I've seen this so many times. New Christians thrust into places of leadership or influence and it's often it's often because often in the church today we confuse we confuse giftedness with character and you can have somebody who the Lord has supplied with good gifts and that over time and the development of their character will be of great use to God and his church. But sometimes we recognize somebody with great giftedness and we thrust them into the thing and they don't have the entire foundation of a mature Christian faith to, to go. I've seen so many. If you see an implosion in the church, it's usually related because somebody's giftedness, they were, they were placed in an area where their giftedness far outpaced their maturity. If I was gambling... I would wager if you hear of a failure, you're having somebody who is elevated to a place based on their giftedness that far exceeded their level of maturity. And then verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Now, sometimes this could be pushed you know quite far i think in our day and age um, we we live in in a time where there's not a lot of outsiders that would have respect for christians regardless um we you may have heard the characterizations of um positive world neutral world and negative world christianity you know like you know, fifty some years ago, the evangelical church in America would have been viewed positively. Pastors would have been viewed positively, right? Think of Billy Graham. I mean, society wide. And then we moved into kind of like a, what what's uh, Aaron Rind categorizes this in a great article from a couple years ago. And then we moved into kind of like neutral world, where the the, the world at large just kind of sees Christianity as like, eh. It's you know, could be helpful, but. We don't hold it in high regard, and he makes the case in this article that we've moved now into negative world. That it just, if you're a Christian, it, the immediate impulse for most people is, well, we don't, I don't like you. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have any respect for you. So you're going to not be thought of well by outsiders, and so don't fall into the trap of trying to be thought well of outsiders by accommodating your beliefs or you know, changing—you know—softening your stance on certain things, and those kinds of things. Let's let's be let's change our view, or let's moderate our view on sexual ethics, for instance. Mm. So we could be thought of well by the outsiders. Or let's practice pronoun hospitality, so that we could be thought of well by outsiders. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying don't don't do the types of things that would cause and would upend what he began with. Being above reproach. So don't fall into the disgrace and the snare uh, of the devil. So a couple of uses. Let's stop there. We won't go into First Timothy, or excuse me, Titus chapter 1. Let's just stop there. Here's a couple of, couple of uses here. Use number one. And, and I've hinted at this a couple of times throughout. With the exception of two, able to teach and a new convert Every single qualification on this list for for potential elders is a qualification or a quality that is expected from every Christian. You could go through and see, if you were to do a word search of all of these things, and I just gave you a sampling of these, every single one of these is something that is expected from every Christian who is growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one. So in other words, what is expected from elders is that they just be good Christians. Not super Christians, not uber Christians. That's just that we'd be good Christians. So when you're looking, we kind of got into the weeds about every one of these, but you're just kind of supposed to read this as a whole, just here, is this somebody who matches, that fits this description? You know, it's not like the 23 things and you go, boy, this person is totally ruled out because of of one thing here. No, you're supposed to get a holistic picture of all of them. And you're basically, hey, do do they demonstrate that they are genuinely converted of the Lord and are growing in the faith, right? If you're looking for super Christians, you run the temptation of doing because you're, you're, what, what you're What your framework for super-Christian might be based on giftedness. And then you run into that whole problem I just talked about. You're looking for maturity. You're looking for somebody just as a mature Christian. Uh, One of the commentators, as I was reading this week, says this. Okay, And then see if this doesn't challenge when you think of elders and you think of elder qualifications, that this doesn't challenge your preconceived ideas a little bit. It says this, quote, it is surprising that the required standards do not lead us to suppose that the usual aspirant for office was of a particularly high quality. <laughs> Let me say that again. It's surprising that the required standards do not lead us to suppose that the elder is of a particular high quality. It's basically saying, hey, what you're to look for is, this, this is a picture of an average Christian I thought that was pretty interesting. Since no exceptional virtues are demanded. There's nothing exceptional about these. So elders and overseers are not super Christians necessarily. Just those who've demonstrated in their life and their reputation that they are genuinely Christ's. There's a demonstration that the Holy Spirit really is producing fruit in them. Fundamentally, an elder is just a mature Christian to which the church can say, yes, among us, that that would this person is is an example of somebody that we could trust to lead to lead the church. And here's use uh, number two, going back to verse one. Apostle says that this is a noble task, a noble task and I was like, ooh, noble, nobility. Sounds cool. And it's like, let me go, go into the Greek. And then I'm reading it into the Greek, and it's like, uh, good work. That's what it is. It's a good work. If I could you know, say what Paul is saying there, if anybody really wants to use, uh, diff, it's good work. Which kind of sounds like, you know, like it's good work if you could get it, you know, kind of thing. A uh, noble task makes it sound far more glamorous, far nicer. Paul's just saying it's good work. You know, it's hard work, uh, but it's good work. And it reminds me—I've seen this floating around before—the the the, uh, the newspaper ad for um, Sir Henry Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton. Have you seen what I'm talking about, right? Uh, and I'm not sure if this is fictitious or not. Henry Sha- uh, Ernest Shackleton was a real person, uh, but and he was a, a, an explorer, and he would do explorations in a- Antarctica uh, numerous years ago. And he had a disaster, and his ship, you know, uh, got stuck in the ice, and then—so they survived by them camping on the ice for I don't know how long until it—but uh, they couldn't move, so they had to wait for the ice to melt— and then they did their inflatable boats, and then they went 720 nautical miles away to get saved, right? So as the story goes, apparently the, the story goes is that he put a newspaper ad out that said this, quote, wanted, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, <laughs> honor and recognition in event of success. And I, I like that because I think that that describes Fairly well, uh, most of the cases, uh, the pastoral job, especially in Michigan. (laughs) Bitter, cold, long hours of complete darkness. (laughs) Safe return doubtful, right? Um, But honor and recognition in event of success. Um, I think that there's some truth. I think there's a lot of truth to that. This is, it is a noble task. But the nobility doesn't come from the position or the status, okay? Um, and I I know this, and I, I in, in my heart when I was young and you're you're just enthusiastic to serve the Lord and go into ministry and stuff. And uh, sometimes it's like the perks or what you you know think I could go study, I could have books and all of those things. And don't get me wrong, those are those are great. Um, but but. It's, it's not noble. It's just work. But it's good work. It's, it's a good work. Why? Because you're serving the Lord. You're serving his church. You're serving his people. That he is entrusted as he is as ascending into heaven as is seating at the right hand of the Father and he sends the Holy Spirit. He's entrusted that work to overseers, elders, and shepherds in the church. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And then this other term here, the saying is trustworthy. Okay? The saying is trustworthy. We've already seen this before. This is the second of five trustworthy sayings, right? And have you ever explored all of Paul's trustworthy sayings? We saw in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What is it? Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Wow. That's a trustworthy saying. What's the next trustworthy saying? Verse 9 of chapter 4. All of them occur in the pastoral epistles, by the way. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Right? But that's the end of the verse. Uh, It's referring to the verse before it. Verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way and holds promise for the present life, but also the life to come. Paul says, that's a trustworthy saying. Second Timothy chapter 2, here's another trustworthy saying. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, will we also live with him? If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Wow, what a trustworthy saying. uh, One more, Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things. But he's actually referring again, in this case, again, to what's happened before, which is Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Then he continues on. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at what Paul says when he says trustworthy sayings. If I summarize those, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Godliness is of value in every way. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, saved us, not because of our works done by righteousness, but because, but according to his mercy. That we are justified by his grace and become heirs in the hope of eternal life. Those, And then you add to that list another trustworthy saying, if you aspire to oversee the church, it's good work. It's good work. It's amazing, isn't it? That that term gets put alongside of all of those magnificent statements that we, that we hear. And in a way, I think it's almost understated Paul is saying, it's good work. Because again, it's a work that God has given to his church. Humans did not devise the pastoral overseer office. That is a gift. Ephesians chapter 4 says it is a gift. It's one of the gifts that Christ has given to his church. And so it's good work. And so friends, be mindful. Again, as I reminded us last week, you need to know this because you need to know who it is that shepherds, shepherds this church. Amen? Amen. We now get the chance to come to the Lord's Supper. And so I invite you to join with me in prayer. We come to this table with joy and thanksgiving and thinking about the amazing gift that God has given us of pastors and overseers in the church, that these are indeed Christ's gift, but only to shepherd us toward the gift that is even greater, and that is the gift of his son and the salvation that comes in his name alone. And that salvation is pictured for us in a tangible way. The invisible realities are given a visible form for us through the, through the means of grace that he has given us in the church that Jesus took, took bread and he took the fruit of the vine and that he broke the bread and he took the, the, the wine that was crushed and poured out and Jesus said, this is a visual, tangible way of understanding the gospel. And so we have a tremendous joy and a privilege to come. If you are believers in Jesus Christ, you come. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that feeds us. And now we thank you for feeding us with the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, as your word promises, that he is present here with us spiritually by faith. And that in the same way that these elements would nourish our bodies, give us strength, and to refresh our souls and spirits, so the truth of what Jesus has done for us refreshes us spiritually and enables us to continue in our journey in this world as we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you that we could come to this table and we do so with joy and gladness. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. amen.